I'm Paul Heron, and this is episode 24 of the Ani Isnin podcast. On this, the 114th anniversary of Ani Isnin's birth, the topic is her diaries, how they came to be, and what comes next. We are well aware of the fact that the original series of diaries by Ani Isnin were heavily edited by Neen herself for the sake of protecting those dear to her from being scandalized by her many sexual relationships, most of which she kept hidden from everyone except a very select group of friends. Her husband, Hugh Geiler, was cut altogether from the diary, and the intimate details of Neen's relationships with Henry Miller, Gonzalo Moray, and dozens of others were all removed. The end result was something other than what most consider a diary. It was actually more of a selective autobiography, which grants the author more freedom and creativity. Most of us think of diaries as day-to-day lists of facts, but Neen's diaries, even the unedited versions, were something else. It was a recording of Neen's inner life, her struggle to grow, to connect, to become whole, to find fulfillment as an artist and woman. Unfortunately, the English language is limited enough that this massive document is called a diary. There are actually three series of Neen's diaries— the original seven-volume series covering the years 1931 to 77. There's a four-volume early diary series covering the years 1914 to 1931. And, of course, the third is the five, soon-to-be-six-volume unexpurgated series, which covers the material left out of the original series. In other words, Neen's intimate life. Many critics have felt that this carving up of Nien's oeuvre has harmed her credibility. Feminists felt betrayed by the original series because of the absence of the husband who supported Nien financially. Nien was seen as some sort of independent, self-supporting pioneer, and when it was clear that she had been married the entire time, she was called a liar and attacked by militant feminists at some of her lectures in the 1970s. In her diary of the time, Neen pasted a newspaper photograph of an angry feminist and said, I was attacked by a woman who looked like this. The assumption was that Neen herself had taken the husband out, when actually it was he who made the decision. A personal pet peeve of mine is that this fact is mentioned in Gunther Stuhlman's introduction of the first volume, which obviously these people never bothered to read. The seventh and final volume of the original series ends in 1974, three years before Neen's death, three years which were marred by her battle with cancer. It was something she didn't want the fans of the diary to know about, choosing rather to end it during her dreamlike visit to Bali, in which she describes death as a flight to another life. Interestingly, however, her executor and lover, Rupert Pohl, chose to include passages from her final private diaries, the Book of Music, and the Book of Pain, in which she intimated her long and excruciating struggle to survive. Does this indicate something more than a simple decision on Paul's part? Is it possible that Neen did wish at some future time to publish this material? At any rate, Diary 7, the final volume, came out in 1980, three years after Neen's death, And there was a market for the diaries that preceded the first volume that began in 1931 when Neen was 28 years old. In fact, the first early volume, 
Linote, which began when Nin was 11 years old, came out in 1978, two years before Diary 7. The four volumes of the early diaries continued to come out into the first half of the 1980s, a time when Hugh Geiler was still alive, and they were only lightly edited. The reason they were not heavily gutted was because Nin's romantic life had yet to take shape. There were no real affairs to cut, no salacious details, unless her aborted tryst with John Erskine counts as infidelity. These early diaries were indeed complete. John Farone, Nien's editor at Harcourt, only edited them for flow and to reduce repetitions, a far cry from what he was about to do with the first so-called unexpurgated diary, Henry and June. When Hugh Geiler died in 1985, the path was cleared for the intimate diaries to begin. The label, unexpurgated, is unfortunate. Not only is it an ugly term, it isn't really true. Unexpurgated means nothing has been cut. But therein lies the problem. Since the original series of diaries had already been published, with great success, I might add, one could not simply publish the uncut diary as is because half the material was already in print. No publisher would consider republishing the same material and simply spicing it up with the affairs and so on, so a plan had to be concocted to release the new versions in a way that was compelling, self-explanatory, and let them stand on their own. Rupert called on John Farone, who had edited the early diaries and Nien's erotica, to help him come up with a way to make the unexpurgated diaries come to fruition. In his article, The Making of Henry and June, the book, which appeared in the 2006 edition of A Cafe in Space, Farone says, Rupert Pohl and I began discussions about the unexpurgated diary a few weeks after Hugo's death. Rupert, Aniisa's second husband in a bigamous marriage, was the head of the Aniisnin Trust. I was her editor at Harcourt Brace Jovanovich. Rupert asked me to edit the first of a string of uncensored volumes, confident we could match the success of Delta of Venus, which I edited nine years earlier. I had my own thoughts on how the project should be handled, passed along in a stern letter to Rupert in early March 1985. We could not start from scratch, I argued, but had to focus on the suppressed material. Harcourt already had 11 diary volumes in print, the main series and an early series, and we could hardly strain the bookmarker with yet another series under the name Diary. I saw as a model Ani Issa's well-manicured editing of the first diary volume, which covered the same time period as would Henry and June. Ani Issa had not hesitated to cut, add, refine, and possibly invent I believed an author deserved the same rigorous editing, whether living or dead. But the two men had opposing points of view about how Nien's writing should be edited. Paul's was to leave it alone, to preserve each and every word exactly as Nien wrote it. Farone, as he noted in his article, believed in boldness, severe cutting, and creative rewording and shuffling of the raw material. Paul's goal was to keep on East Nien alive through the writing, Farone's was to produce a bestseller, and they clashed. Farone says, Eventually Rupert sent me 787 pages of raw manuscript and gave me the license to edit as I saw fit, or so I thought. When some months later he read the edited version whittled down by half, he complimented me lavishly but insisted on restoring many poetic passages. I protested. 
He called on friends to back him up. Eventually, they compromised, but the process was bruising and bloody, as the correspondence between Paul and Ferone reveals. Despite the fact that Ferone had once again produced a masterpiece, he vowed to never put himself through the ordeal of dealing with Paul again. He refused the second unexpurgated volume. Henry and June stands out from the rest of the unexpurgated diaries because it reads like a novel. There is a distinct distillation of everything down to the bare plot of Dean's life in 1931 and 32, her awakening as a sensual woman. The cast of characters is kept to a minimum. Neen, Hugh Geiler, her husband, Henry Miller, and of course June, Miller's sultry wife. There were no family members to speak of, no trivial daily details, no wandering off on tangents. Years later, when Ferone was helping me with Mirage's, the most recent Neen diary, he sent me Xeroxes of a few pages of the manuscript of Henry and June with his annotations. There was barely anything that was left untouched. Words were substituted for less dramatic words, passages were rearranged, huge chunks were crossed out. It looked like a plate of literary spaghetti with arrows, crossouts, and every editorial symbol known to man. No one can argue with the results. Not only was the book a success, it was also made into a feature film. When Rose Kaufman, director Philip Kaufman's wife, read the book, she knew immediately that it needed film treatment. And what treatment it got? While the film contains many artistic asides, it remains true to the content of the diary. The only problem was that it was rated NC-17, the first film to receive such a rating. The rating kept the film from receiving the sort of audience size that was anticipated, but personally I'm happy about it, perhaps selfishly, because the rating was the only reason I wanted to see it, and it was this film that turned me on to Neen and Miller in the first place. The film helped prompt the next unexpurgated diary, released two years later in 1992. Since Ferome was no longer involved in editing Neen's work, Rupert Paul asked Gunther Stuhlman, Neen's agent and sometimes editor, to help him edit the new diary, titled Incest. Of all the unexpurgated diaries, Incest was the most in-your-face, the most controversial, and the most maligned. As the title suggests, the main event in the volume was Neen's incestuous love affair with her father, the pianist and composer Joaquin Neen, who had abandoned her and the family when she was ten years old. The incest passage, which is several pages long, is haunting, chilling, disturbing. But in my opinion, it is some of Neen's most powerful writing. It is both explicit and poetic. It makes the reader feel like a voyeur, a ghost who witnesses everything firsthand. It is written in such a way that one can feel the events as they unfold, hear the sounds, taste the air. But what a stir it caused, first and foremost, with Neen's surviving friends and family. One of those most affected by the revelations of incest was Neen's younger brother, Joaquin Neen Kumel, also a pianist and composer, and the former head of UC Berkeley's music department, not to mention a very pious man. He had no warning about the book, and he read the passages about his sister making love to his father just like everyone else. It seems to me, and I should add I cannot know for sure, 
that Paul and Stulman felt that keeping Joaquin clueless about the incest diary would make things simpler for them, for he surely would have protested at the very least. The publication of incest caused a great hatred for Rupert, Paul, and Gunther Stulman on Joaquin's part, one that never faded. Joaquin tried to both deny and rationalize the incest passage, theorizing that it wasn't true, that it was an exercise of sorts, formulated by Nien's analyst Otto Rank to write out her fantasies. Some of Nien's friends refused to believe the passage. Some even claimed that Paul or Stulman or both wrote it themselves. Critics attacked Nien's morality viciously. And if this weren't enough, the final passage of incest describes Nien's horrific late-term abortion, again powerfully written, but highly controversial. Suddenly, readers and critics alike confused Nien's life and work and could not sort the art from her actions. Nien was being judged for her life, not her work. This was really the beginning of the end of her second wave of popularity. The next two volumes of Unexpurgated Diaries, Fire and Nearer the Moon, edited by Stuhlman, were poorly received and sales plummeted. In my opinion, the editing of the last two volumes was such that it rendered Ani Eastneen as a repetitive and, believe it or not, boring writer. Reviews were bad. Gunther Stuhlman once inferred that he was so tired of arguing with Paul over the insistence that Neen's writing be basically unedited that he began to give in to Paul's demands just to avoid the confrontations. Not to mention that Stuhlman added, I'm so sick of Gonzalo and Helba, Gonzalo and Helba, so sick of Francis Field, Francis Field, Francis Field. I don't care if I ever hear those names again. This lack of focus and direction is evident in the last two diaries. In fact, when I did a search for Nearer the Moon, the final Harcourt volume, it doesn't seem to even be in print. Only the Peter Owen edition is. After Nearer the Moon, Paul offered two new unexpurgated manuscripts to Harcourt, but they refused them. For all intents and purposes, Neen's fame was in critical condition in the mid-1990s. For the next several years, nothing came out, nor were there any serious efforts to publish the rest of the diary material. The two manuscripts that Paul had offered to Harcourt sat in his Silver Lake house, collecting dust, until Paul's companion, Kazuko Sugasaki, employed a friend to edit and hawk them. After more than two years, no editing had been done, and the only offer came from a small press that didn't seem to have much passion for Neen's work. Out of desperation, perhaps, Tsukasaki offered the manuscripts to me, and, of course, I accepted this monumental responsibility. Naturally, I sought out John Farone's help, and he was happy to give it to me. Under his tutelage, I became a little bit more decisive and a little bit more daring in my editing. John kept telling me that Neen deserved such treatment, that her work was too valuable to handle with kid gloves. The result was Mirages, which covers the years 1939 to 47, co-published by Sky Blue Press and Swallow Press in 2013. Its release was the first since 1996. Would people still care? It had been 17 years. Would the critics pile on as they had done before? 
Would they judge Neen's erotic madness of the 1940s? Or would they recognize her struggle for happiness and requited love, her quest to become a whole woman? There were no New York Times reviews, no major newspapers, no major magazine, no New Yorker, and so on. But the ones that did appear were rave. Publishers Weekly said, Neen fans will embrace the book's emotional intensity and sensuality. Kirkus said, In one late entry, Neen complains mildly, My world is so large I get lost in it. Readers will do the same, and gratefully so. But the reactions of individual readers, which I continue to get, are the most gratifying. As is seeing mirages cited in academic work, its inclusion in theses and dissertations around the world. The success of Mirages was so terribly important to Nien's canon. It meant that she still spoke to her readers in a valuable way. It meant that the rest of the diaries actually have a future. And it means new readers. Just as Mirages was being published, I began transcribing and editing Trapeze, the diary that chronicles the beginning of Nien's double life, Two Husbands, Two Homes, Two Lives. There were more than 4,500 handwritten pages, boiling down to 1,400 single-spaced typewritten pages, all of which had to be edited to about 360 pages. Trapeze is the second co-publication between Sky Blue Press and Swallow Press, and there seems to be a real anticipation for this book, and I'm hoping it marks the resurrection of a worldwide interest in Ani Isnin. And the work is not done. I have nearly finished the transcription, thanks in part to some dear friends who helped me out, of 1955-66, to 66, the years preceding Neen's first published diary. It's like a circle being completed. This particular volume presents a huge challenge, because Neen ceased writing regularly in any form of diary beginning in 1958. Her life is recorded in an entirely new way, through the mirrors and filters of correspondence with many, many people. Nien called it Le Journal des Autres, the diary of others. And yet, the energy is still there, as is the suspense and drama of Nien's long, seemingly impossible quest for recognition, her many failures weighing her down, and yet her constant refusal to quit, to give up, or to let it go. There will be another volume after that, the volume of fame, illness, and death. It will be called from several of Neen's handwritten diaries, a habit she revived in 1966, just after the publication of Volume 1 of the Diary of Ani East Neen. And yes, this will include the famous books of pain and music written at the very end. So, you ask, have I concluded that Neen did intend that her final diaries would be published? The answer lies in Neen's comment in the postscript to the introduction of Delta of Venus which she wrote at the very end of her life. Quote, if the unexpurgated diaries ever come out, unquote. Those are her words, not Rupert Pohl's, not Gunther Stuhlman's, not anyone else's. When push comes to shove, I always believe Anna Eastney's words over those of anybody else. This podcast is hosted by Volume 14 of A Cafe in Space, now in print and available through Amazon and other book dealers. This has been the Ani Eastine Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until the next time.